Good day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday, 3rd of October, 1946. Bet's still in Nanchang and she's in a chatty mood as she writes to her mother with all sorts of odds, ends, bits and pieces. Before we hear from Bet, though, we'll resume briefly the story of Unra. Chapter 21, Yeast for the Future Another UNRWA self-help measure was its fellowship program. Although UNRWA specialists taught and counselled steadily as they worked, they could not begin to train enough people to carry on efficiently even the rehabilitation projects they had started. So, 125 carefully chosen professional men and women were brought to the United States from the battleground countries to catch up on scientific and technical advances made in their fields during the war years. In addition, 31 fellows were sent to various European countries, most of them to Great Britain, but a few to Sweden, France and Switzerland. The UNRWA Fellowship Division planned three- to six-month courses for the specialists in one of six major fields – agricultural rehabilitation, finance, health industrial rehabilitation, medical and sanitation supplies, and welfare. The fellows crammed in study and travel during their short stay. Many took courses at universities. Others did research in laboratories and visited and studied and observed at experimental stations, in factories and on farms, in welfare institutions, in hospitals and clinics, and in many departments of government. They are now back in their home countries, teaching, directing research, and helping reorganise institutions and programmes. They might be called the yeast among the ingredients for rehabilitation in lands where the job ahead still looms dishearteningly large. We'll continue with the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now, to Nanchang. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changxi, 3rd of October 1946. Mother dear, I seem to have such a lot of your lovely letters to answer. Numbers 30 to 34 inclusive, together with number 23, all arrived together two days ago, and such lots of news they contained. Letter 23 was a heavy one. 14 beaut pages, and the cutting about the law ball. My best plan is to read through them again and answer any questions before I settle down to giving you any fresh news. By the way, my co-workers here think that I am terrible the way I type letters to my family and friends. They claim that personality is lost in the typing. I claim that they are jealous of my output, which so greatly exceeds theirs and also that my family and friends should know my personality by now if they are ever going to know it without getting constant reminders in my scrawling handwriting. You don't all mind, do you? Actually, I think that I do you a good service because I am sure that the typing is much easier to read. This is still the UNRWA typewriter that I'm using, one of the new portables, 
and my own little Corona is waiting for Kay to return and service it for me. I'm getting used to this one now, and I do not have to hurdle over the back of it so often. I am awake up to its little eccentricity, about which I'm sure I have told you. You ask about the dressmaking. I have an idea that I have now told you how we manage. We have a man-tailor who, incidentally, cannot speak a word of English. He's only good at copying and cannot follow a drawing or an indication of a new style. That, of course, limits our wardrobe a great deal. We all borrow each other's clothes for patterns. He cannot get the gist of the patterns that you sent me. During winter, when we sit at home at nights, I may find the time to do some sewing for myself, but it will all be by hand as there is no machine anywhere within Kui. Ama can help me out, of course, and she sews well. Blouses and skirts seem to be quite the best idea, and we can get the tailor to make blouses satisfactorily. Strangely enough, I'm always being complimented on my appearance and on my many clothes. Shows how easy it is to trick a man. The secret, of course, lies in wearing khaki during the daytime and in having my sunsuits with three pieces and in having different blouses, all of which go with the different skirts. I'm quite sure that life at home will never be dull, even after all the things of interest here. Apart from anything else, Mother dear, I know that I'm going to appreciate many of the very ordinary things of our home life, which one takes for granted. In China, those very ordinary things would be extreme luxuries. I find quite often that I think of such things as carpet on the floor, a shiny tap with water coming out of it, a gas oven with a dinner baking in it, all funny fuel stoves here and never any baking, always steaming, boiling, grilling, an easy chair, a clean grocer shop, a butcher shop with sawdust on the floor where they will wrap your meat for you in paper and not hand it to a customer dangling on a bit of hemp string, and a cup of tea with milk in it, served in a cup with a handle, and one of Mimi's scones balancing on the saucer. Silly little things, but I miss them all. Life here is no bed of roses, although for a short time the quaintness and the new experience provide the necessary compensation. Poor Mimi! You do have so many interruptions in your letter writing, don't you? I find that I get your days mixed up a bit in consequence. But me gone she, that is, it doesn't matter. I do love your chatty letters, and knowing how you do fall asleep over them, I appreciate them all the more. I can just picture the spots where your pen begins to wriggle up and down and then the other spots where you break out into a quiet little snore. Disrespectful daughter, aren't I? Yes, Mimi. I am very well, still, and expect to remain so. This stupid climate is absolutely unpredictable now that we get towards winter, so I will not be surprised if there are a few minor ailments in the hostel. Dengue is rampant in the city now, and five of our people have gone down with it. I put the word dengue in quotes because the medicos do not think that it really is dengue at all. The sickness accompanied by a high fever, lasts for about one week. Backaches, headaches, general weariness, slight rash, loss of weight, and the constant temperature. Appears to be the most uncomfortable and depressing, but 
in every case, has gone after a week or ten days. I hope I can escape. I had mentioned in recent letters that the cool weather was here after the three days of typhoon and that the days were beautiful. I spoke too soon. It got hotter and hotter and we were back to where we left off. Heat rashes, sweat and all. Last night came another change and the typhoon is on us again, whipping up the river and loading the house with sand and grit. I suppose we must go through another three days of it and then goodness knows whether it will be hot or cold. I give up. Even Inigo Jones would not make a living in China. Thank you for the addresses that you sent on to me from Mrs. Ford. I already had the one of Mr. Hutchinson and had endeavoured to contact him when I was in Shanghai. They told me then that he was not in Shanghai, that he had returned to England, but maybe he's back again now. I have made a note of the other address and have made up my mind to see Hong Kong before I leave home. I still have many addresses of people there. Had a letter a few weeks ago from a deaconess in Shanghai wanting me to have tea with her. She did not know that I was out in the country. She had heard from a friend in the States who is a friend of Peg Seabert's. I will look her up when, eventually, I return to the Big Bag City. Of course... I'll be back for Ju's wedding, unless she puts a fast one over me. No one has yet indicated when the big event might be, and so I have not handed in my resignation yet. Please give me plenty of notice, and I'll be there. Already Hank has suggested that he wants to get me home, and that he's ready to leave Unruh whenever I do, so that creates no difficulty, just in case you thought that I had put him out of my mind. I have bought some white china silk for Jew and will send it as soon as there is a way of doing so. It is more of the plain and useful variety, but should last her forever. Thought it might do for a couple of blouses or a slip or something. Should have something pretty to accompany it by the time the parcel has found a means of transport. Do you think that the coupons will lift soon? was so glad to hear of Phil's trials being over so quickly and easily. Naturally, I was all impatient to hear a description of the young man, and now I feel that I know him quite well. What a good idea to get Mrs. Tress to help out. I'm sure she will be the most willing helper that Phil could have, and should be able to save a lot of effort about the house. I'm sure that I must have told you of the arrival of my various parcels, the cushion from Phil, the bras from Dosh, the tin of biscuits, the tin of sweets, etc., and all the magazines. I'm still waiting to see the bit of my letter that appeared in the sun. Everyone seems to have seen it but Betty Mavis. I expect my other circular correspondents, who had received copies of that particular letter, wondered who had been rifling through their drawers. Did I tell you that it was Lillian Goldsmith who was responsible? She had given the circular to Gwyn Moffat to read and suggested that some of it might be printed verbatim. Apparently it was. I'm enclosing some stamps for Mr Butcher. Please give them to him with my kind regards. Actually, there are quite a lot here. Mars might like to keep some of the extras for swaps. Pleasure to do business. We'll be glad when I read that building at the crag has actually started. 
Sounds as if everything is running smoothly with the possible exception of the passing of your two-story plan by the Crag Architects. I hope it is all well and truly settled by now. Is my land still there? I'll be able to have picnics on it from your house, if nothing else. No, still no luggage. But Shanghai tells me that my luggage arrived on the Nellior in Shanghai on September the 1st, and that it was to be sent on immediately. Kay's probably on his way back here now and should have some of it with him. I know that Hank is doing, or has done, everything possible at the Shanghai end. I am waiting on a letter from him now, telling me all about it. You ask if there is anything that I would like. My requirements must sound most peculiar. I would like a tin of jam, strawberry if possible, or black currant or plum, or anything else that you can get. I would also like some APCs. Maybe another packet of butter malts or butterscotch, some billy tea, and films where possible. The tin of biscuits is marvellous. We are nearly halfway through. Marge says she feels a heel. She's got into the way of saying, have we any lollies left? Shall we have a couple of our biscuits, etc.? And then we laugh like mad. I ran out of money again at the end of last month, so I asked her where we kept our money, whereupon she handed it over without a thought or comment and only later realised that I was brightly spending her money. We have fun. I have bought myself a rather lovely scroll, a long one, and a very good one, and was amused when Marge promptly said, I think we had better hang our new scroll over that door, don't you? I haven't been mentioning my purchases much lately, have I? The collection is slowly growing, though I'm sending most of the little odds and ends home as soon as I can. I have asked Marge whether there is anything else I can ask the family to send us, whereupon she has almost crowned me and says, no thank you, but the jam will be very nice and thank you very much for parcels received. At least she will not be wearing my new bras. Though I suppose that is possible too. I have one letter from Claude since he left here. It was written from Shanghai and he was very worried because he still had not heard from his lady love. He will, I think, keep in touch with me and with Hank so that if the novel is ever completed, we will hear about it. I imagine that he would send me a signed copy. Claude and I became very good friends. Well, Mimi darling, I have now reread all those letters of yours and I think that I have answered all questions. I am missing Hank very much, and it's pretty obvious that he's doing his utmost to get back here. He has seen Brigadier Field at my request, so Dad will be able to get an outsider's description of him when the Brigadier returns, probably before Christmas, to Sydney. Hank also went to see Bill Taylor and took Wendy to dinner. Both Bill and Wendy have written to me telling me what a nice person he is and why does he spend all his time talking about you? I shall ignore that question when replying to their letters, even though I like to know that they are interested. Bill is out of hospital now and trying to stay on here and do the job that he came here to do. I do not hear from Harry these days, though I hear quite a lot of his doings. When I said no to him, he said he would rather drop the correspondence for the present guess that that is all the gossip for now. 
Oceans of Love, Mother Dear, from your boo. Kiss, kiss. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune this episode, an Irving Berlin song from the Paramount movie Blue Skies, You Keep Coming Back Like a Song, performed by Joe Stafford with Paul Weston and his orchestra. Spill